0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Good morning. We're continuing our study in uh, 2 Th- Thessalonians this morning. And I'm actually going to finish chapter 1 today. I'm not sure how long we've spent on it, but we've been there for a while. Uh, In the first two verses of this chapter, it's just kind of a standard letter form of the first century, and Paul's just giving his greetings. And then verse 3 through 10 is one sentence in the Greek, and it's basically just dealing with the second coming. And then in verse 11 and 12, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul tells us about his prayers for this group. Now before we look at our text today, let me remind you something we talked about early in our study of Thessalonians. This is the only church in the New Testament that Paul presents as an example for other churches. I think that says a lot. He's holding them up as an example for the rest of the churches. So, they've got something going on here. In verses 3 and 4, he says, "...we ought always to give thanks to, you, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and your love for every one another is increasing." Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this is a persecuted church. This is a suffering church. And Paul said they're just growing in faith. They're growing in love. They're doing amazing. And he's using them as an example. That's a pretty glowing evaluation. And this is a church that hopefully we can learn something from as we study this letter. Now, <clears throat> we've been talking about the fact that, you know, eschatology is a major theme in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And one commentator has written, he says 2nd Thessalonians is an eschatological letter filled with thoughts of the future. Mm-hmm. Well, when he wrote that recently, no, it wasn't. You know, And that's the problem, okay? This, that would be true from the writer's perspective, but it wouldn't be true for us. for us. The eschatology that's laid out in this letter came to a conclusion in AD 70, in the first century, in that generation, just as the Lord said it would. Let's look at the <clears throat> closing words in this chapter. He says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Yeshua may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now he says, To this end, he starts out. To what end? Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's referring back to the coming of the Lord. The kingdom, the glory, the destruction that he's going to bring against the unbelievers, those who are persecuting them, and the glorification of the saints. So in light of all these things he's just been talking about, these great events of the future, Paul says, this is how I pray for you. And he says, we always pray for you. Now, this is not actually a prayer here. This is more of a prayer report. Paul is telling them, this is how I pray for you. And whenever Paul says, We pray for you, he always says always. Now, the Greek word translated always here, pantote, is a word that was used of an individual that had a constant cough. In other words, if you had a constant cough, you're not just coughing continually without a break, it's intermittent. And Paul doesn't mean that he prays for them every second of every day and he doesn't do anything else. It's like someone with a hack, hacking cough, you know, he prays for them repeatedly, he prays for them often, but he tells all the churches this. So Paul might Paul had quite a prayer life. Now, there's really an emphasis on prayer in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 14 times he mentions prayer. You know, you really can't read an epistle of Paul without Either getting a direct prayer or a prayer report on how he prays. And this prayer links specifically with the issues that are addressed in 6 verses 6 through 10, because these believers were suffering for their faith. But the thing that's really, I think, stands out to me in this report. Remember, the, these Thessalonians are going through great persecution. Some of them are dying, they're being tortured. But Paul never prays for their persecution to end. Doesn't that seem weird to us? I mean, that definitely would be our number one prayer request, wouldn't it? But he prays, his prayers are focused on their growth and godliness. His prayers are focused on the furtherance of God's kingdom and the glory that will take place through their persecution. There's nothing material in this prayer report. You know, and Christians typically pray for health, We pray for happiness, we pray for success, we pray for personal benefit. Most of our prayers center around health. You know, you get to a prayer meeting, pray for this, they're sick, they're not feeling good, that it's all about health. You don't see Paul doing that, all right? Paul prays that God Himself would enable the readers to achieve the previously mentioned preeminent goal of giving glory to God. And with this goal of glorifying God in mind, Paul says, we constantly pray for you. I think that prayer is difficult for us, for Christians. I think most Christians struggle with a prayer life. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think, first of all, we struggle because we don't seem to get the answers to prayer we want. And if you're not getting what you want, you think, you know, why pray? I asked God for this. He didn't give it to me. You know, so what's the deal? Well, I think that's where holding my view of prayer can be very helpful, because I see prayer as a declaration of dependence. So when you go to God in prayer, you're saying, God, I need you. That's why I'm asking you for this, whatever it be. And I think God is very glorified in man's dependence. Now, we could say that if prayer is a declaration of dependence, then the opposite is prayerlessness is a declaration of dependence of self-sufficiency. So when you're not praying, you're saying, God, I got this. Just kind of stand by and watch. And I think God is much more glorified in our dependence that we just declare whatever, that we are in need of Him in any and every situation we face. So it's okay if your prayers don't get answered the way you want. The important thing is that God knows you are declaring to Him your dependence. I need you in this situation, Lord. However you work it out, I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need you to help me deal with this. I think there's another reason we often don't pray as we should. And that's because we know that God's sovereign. And so we assume, why pray? God's already got a plan. He's working everything together for His good. Now, we here at BBC, we know that God is absolutely sovereign, but we still pray. And we pray because the sovereign God has told us to pray. And we pray because we know that God does answer prayer. Plenty of prayers we don't get answered or we think we don't get answered, and you might be thankful for that. But God does answer prayer. Look at what happened to Hezekiah, Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, came to him, and he said to him, thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, you shall die and shall not recover. That's not a great report to hear from the Lord. You know, get things in order, you're going, you're done. Well, after that, in response to that, the king wept bitterly, he prayed, he cried out to God, and before Isaiah had even gotten out of the king's house, after delivering that message, God told him, turn around. Turn around. Go back and tell him this, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Wow, that's good news, huh? I think Hezekiah was probably glad that he prayed. If he hadn't prayed, he'd be dead. He would have died because God said, you're going to die. But because of that prayer, God, you know, and how this all works out, okay, how the instrumentality of prayer works into the sovereign plan of God, that's above my pay grade, okay? You're welcome to try to figure that out, you know, how it all works together. But I'm committed to the fact the Bible teaches God is absolutely sovereign, yet He tells us to pray, He wants us to pray, He delights in our prayer, and He answers our prayers. So it all works together, all right? So Paul tells the Thessalonians that he makes three requests to God. He says, we pray for your worthiness, we pray for your fulfillment, and we pray for your work or your service. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Now, let's stop for a minute and just focus on the calling here. What does he mean by that? Well, whenever you see this term calling or your calling in the epistles of the New Testament... It is reference to salvation. Now, this is not an invitation out of which we may respond out of our free will and thus take credit for our salvation. All right, it's used of what theologians would call the efficacious or effectual calling. In other words, when God calls, you respond. All right, <clears throat> and it is used of what God draws people to Himself through this calling. He calls them and they come. We're drawn to salvation. I think it's kind of the same terms that Yeshua used when he spoke about the drawing of the Father in John 6.44. This to me is an ungetoverable verse for Arminians. Okay? I haven't heard a good explanation from an Arminian on how you deal with this because it's a very clear-cut expression from our Lord. He says, and especially if you look at the context and see what's going on here, okay? No one can come to me. No exception clause there, okay? Just nobody can come. Unless, oh, there's an exception. The Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Now what's important here, the words, he said, no one can come to me. If we back up in the text of verse 35, it says, Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here we see that coming to Yeshua and believing in Yeshua are synonymous concepts. They're parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ and vice versa. And this is very important in understanding this text. We could translate this, no one can believe in me unless there's an exception, the Father who has sent me draws him. Now, Some people would go so far as to say, well, God calls, He invites everybody equally at all times, and you just have to respond. Well, this view really distorts the text. If this is all that Yeshua is trying to say, His words really don't make sense in the context of the discussion that's going on here in John 8. His words only make sense if the implication is that His objectors may not have been drawn, and that's why they're not responding. Now, the Greek word translated draws here is helkuo. And and I've heard so many ridiculous concepts of what draws means, okay? You've probably heard them too. You know, God draws everybody. And then you you just make the decision, well, that's fine if you're not going to deal with the language here. But the word draws here is the Greek word helkuo, and helkuo means to drag by irresistible superiority. Look it up. It's used eight times in the New Testament. And if you look up every use of that word, you'll get an idea very clearly on what he's talking about. There's a text that talks about Peter drawing his sword. Did he invite his sword to come out? Did he plead with it to come? Did he beg it to come? No, he grabbed it and he dragged it. He pulled it out. And that's what the idea here is. All right. To drag by irresistible superiority. Now, he says, no one comes unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is what Calvinists, this is what the Bible calls irresistible grace or sovereign grace. Now, it's not that God drags those who don't want to come. They're yelling and screaming, I don't want to be saved. And God's dragging them into salvation. That's not the issue here. It's that God makes willing by His grace. In regeneration, God gives us a new heart that includes a desire for Him. And if God gives us a desire for Christ, we're going to act according to that desire and respond. You know, we see this same idea of the sovereign call in Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, "...for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified." And those He justified, He also glorified. Many have called this the unbroken chain of salvation. God foreknows. That means to love beforehand. It's not that just God knew. It's the idea of love beforehand. Whom He loved, He predestined. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. It's unbroken. There's none lost in the middle there. Like He doesn't foreknow and predestine some and then, oh, doesn't, sorry, you didn't make it. No. This is the process. This is the ordo salutis, okay? The order of salvation. This is how God does it. That's the flow. The predestined are called to salvation. They are declared righteous. They are glorified. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, because of Him, referring to God, because of Him, you are in Christ Yeshua. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The calling of God is an efficacious, effectual calling to salvation. God has called them unconditionally to salvation through Yeshua the Christ. And salvation is all of grace. It's of God's goodness that sinners are elected and forgiven. It's an effective call. It implies that the one who calls is responding to this. All right? He says that our God may make you worthy of this calling. So we've been called by God. We were elect. He died for His people. He draws His people. And then he says, the the prayer that Paul is giving here is, I I want these people who you've called, I want you to make them worthy. Now, worthy here is oxiao, and it means to deem or make worthy. In the gospel, it is the grace of God that imparts worth to people, and the imputed righteousness of Christ and their new position in Christ. In other words, God made you worthy when you were unworthy. All right, He did it by His grace. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. Amen. So, in the position that you occupy before God, positionally, every believer is worthy. But what He's saying here is, in a practical sense, Paul is saying, I'm praying that God will make you worthy. In other words, worthiness has to do here with spiritual character. That the Lord would make you the kind of person you ought to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. What he's effectively saying is he wants their lives to conform to the great theological truth that they share in Christ. Yahweh wants his people to be worthy to bear the name of Christ. He doesn't want his people to bring reproach on the name. Yahweh doesn't want His people to be the cause of Him being blasphemed. The Jews did this. We see this in Romans 2, 22 through 24 You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's saying because of you Jews, because of the way you're living, God's name is being blasphemed. So this idea of being worthy is something that we see all through the New Testament. Okay? Over and over we're called. We see it in our text. We're to be worthy of the calling. And then Paul uses these exact same words in Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling. God has called you. So walk, live in a way that brings glory. Now, he starts out with therefore, and you know when you see therefore, you got to look and find out what it's there for, right? So you got to back up. What's he referring to? He's referring to the first three chapters of this book that are all doctrine. The first three chapters are positional truth, the things that Yahweh has done for them. He tells them He has blessed them with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So he goes through this doctrine for three chapters, then he gets to four, and he says, Therefore, based on everything that God has done for you, walk worthy. And walk is the Greek word, verb here. it means to walk, to live, to conduct one's life. It literally means to walk about or around. And while peripateo is used in the New Testament of one's literal walk, it's often used metaphorically of behavior, of conduct, of one the way one lives. The Christian life is compared to walking, and walking becomes a visual aid to teach us this is how you should live. And throughout the Bible, we're exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We could go back to Isaiah, and Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 2.3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, from Jerusalem. Now the word walk here is the Hebrew word halak. The Christian life, people, is a journey. And we're to walk on His paths. The word Torah, usually translated as law, but to the Hebrew, Torah meant the journey. And to a Hebrew, command were the directions for the journey. Being righteous would be traveling on that path, and being wicked would be wandering off the path. Now, most of us don't like commandments. They're restrictive. We don't like don't do this or do this. But I don't think we see directions that way. You know, directions are helpful. They're beneficial, especially if you're lost. All right? Because directions say go this way. That's the way of the path. And that's God's Word is the directions for the path. He says, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to the path. The Word of God illumines the path that you're to walk on and shows you the path. Because Yahweh has laid out the directions for the path In his word. But we need to read it, we need to study it, we need to follow it. Paul is imploring believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Now, again, manner worthy here. This is the Greek verb axios, and it means worthily, in a worthy manner, suitably. Axios has the idea of weighed a weight balance on a scale. Our English word axiom is derived from it, and it simply means you have equal weight to have a balance there. The idea is on one side you've got the glorious gospel of the grace of God in us through Christ, and on the other side you have your godly conduct that should match up to that calling, especially in loving behavior that preserves the unity of the Spirit. Now Paul is not saying that we can become worthy of Yahweh's love and grace, All right, By anything we do. That can never happen. No matter how hard you might try, you can never walk in a manner that makes you worthy. You are to walk worthy because you already are worthy. You're just to live up to who you are. You're to live up to your calling. You're never going to earn your way to heaven. That's nothing that can be done. And the way I see human obedience is always the result of the response of Yahweh's grace. Human obedience, whatever you find it, within the Word of God, is always because of the operation of the grace of God in someone's life. Over and over in Scripture, we are called to walk in a worthy manner. That's what God wants from us as Christians, to live in a way that honors Him, that brings glory to Him. We're called to be His image bearers, that when people look at our lives, they see God. Philippians 1.27, Paul tells the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we're called to walk worthy of our calling. We're called to walk worthy of the gospel that has called us. In Romans 16:2, he says, that you might welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. I don't know that saints is the best translation here. Holy ones would be better, okay? We think of saints as, I think of the Catholic Church and these you know, people with halos over their heads and all this stuff, but holy ones, that's what we are, okay? And so we're to walk worthy of the holy ones because that's who we are. Colossians 1.10 So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We're to walk worthy of the Lord also. Our walk is to match who we are. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you. Again, God called you. Walk worthy of that calling. Walk worthy of God. Now, Here's what we have to understand. Learning to walk worthy is a matter of biblical instruction. Okay? It's not natural. It's not innate. In other words, now some, you know, people like John MacArthur think, I think he thinks it's innate. In other words, you could say, boom, you're just going to always do right. I missed the boat. Okay? that ship sailed without me, man, okay? Because that's not how it worked, you know? But he just acts like, oh yeah, righteousness is imparted to you. No, righteousness is imputed to us. It's put in our account. It's not imparted. But we're called to walk righteously. But that takes knowledge of the Word of God. Because without the Word, there's no way we know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear the Lord takes the commandments and boils down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. And then the, all the rest of the commandments tell us how to do that. Here's how you love the Lord. Here's how you love your neighbor. You don't slander him. You don't say these things, but you don't do this. You don't steal. All right? But first we have to understand the word. That's where it starts. Let's back up in Colossians nine. And so from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the mind, the understanding. Now notice what he says next in verse 10. So as to walk. Now, so as to walk is an infinitive in the Greek text, which may point to either the purpose or the result. And it seems logical that the infinitive points here to the intended result of knowing the will of God. That this clause points to the intended results, I think, stresses a vital truth. Without the knowledge of God's Word, it's impossible to walk worthy of the Lord. The intended result of the truth of God is a changed conduct. And if we're not spending time in the Word of God, and and like so many churches, they're not even teaching the Bible, they're doing... Three points in a poem, right? Is that right? Did I get it right? That's what they're doing. They're not teaching the Word of God. And if people don't know what God's called them to, how they're supposed to live, then they... It's okay. Whatever. You know? I mean, most Christians, you ask, would probably tell you that homosexuality is okay. Because our culture has accepted it. The Bible doesn't. But we don't know that unless we spend time in the Word of God. Learning it. Reading it. So the worthy walk that we're called to is predicated on knowledge. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why week after week I stand here and I teach the Bible verse by verse. I don't spend a lot of time telling stories. I spend zero time trying to whip you into an emotional frenzy. Okay? I don't care about that. I'm not trying to pump you up. I'm trying to teach you, all right? I want to teach the principles of the Word of God because if you've got that, you can be victorious in life because you know what the Word of God says. And that's why I'm constantly, constantly encouraging you to read your Bible. Read it. Day in, day out. Every year you should go cover to cover through the book. You know how many Christians there are that have never read the Bible? And you know what's really weird? They all have an opinion on it. A book they never read, but they got opinions on it because they heard somebody else talk about that book. Okay? Okay. You need to read it. You need to light in it. You get to know your Lord as you spend time in the Word of God. We're to live consistent with what we know, with what we teach, what we preach, what we believe. That's called integrity. You live out the principles. And I think as a church, we're losing all credibility today because we say one thing and do another. We live one way and preach another. We need to walk worthy of our calling or we destroy our effectiveness and we just become a group of hypocrites. And that's what most people think of the church, you know, because you got people like Swaggart who would stand up and Jimmy Swaggart and rant and rail against adultery while he's doing it. While he's committing it, you know. And we need to remember this, people. The only Bible some people will ever see is the one demonstrated by our lives. And when you say you're a Christian, they're watching you. I guarantee you, they're. you know why they're watching you? Not because they want to learn. They want you to mess up, so they say, see, you're no better than me. You say you're a Christian, and you do this? An unknown author has put it this way. Let me give you a poem for today. <laughs> We're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? That is so true, people. Like I said, when they find out you're a Christian, they focus in on that, and they just, you know, they want to bring you down to their level so they can feel not bad about not doing you know what they're supposed to do. And so they look for opportunities. So you really have to, you know you really got to be on your game people so you can demonstrate Christ to the world we are living in. So what does the worthy walk look like? What are we called to do? Well, if you look at all the places where we're told to walk worthy, you're going to see that the worthy walk is a walk of humility. It's a walk of purity. It's a walk of contentment. Boy, that's something the American church could use, right? Contentment. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk in righteousness. It's a walk in unity. A walk in gentleness. A walk in strength. A walk in patience. A walk in love. A walk in joy. A walk in thankfulness. A walk in light. A walk in knowledge. A walk in wisdom. A walk in truth. And a walk in fruitfulness. All of these attitudes characterize our Lord Yeshua, and they should characterize his disciples. Bottom line is what John says in 1 John 2 6 whoever says he abides in him, do you say you're a disciple of Christ? You say you're a follower of Christ, you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is a high calling, believer, but that's our calling. Bottom line, we're to walk like Christ. We're to respond to situations like He responded. We're to act the way He would act. How do we know? How do we learn how Christ lived and acted? The Gospels, okay? We see His life in the Gospel. You see Him responding to people. You see Him reacting to things. Read the Gospels. Learn who your Lord and Savior is. Now, of course, He's shown throughout the whole Bible, but I'm saying in the Gospels, you see Him walking this earth and doing things. Alright, the second prayer request of Paul is that he may fulfill every resolve for good. This is a pretty cool little statement. Fulfill here is plerao. Plerao can mean accomplish, make effective. It can mean control. It can even mean bring to completion or finish. And the word resolve here is yodokia, and it means good pleasure, desire, will. It's used mostly of God's will, but also of people, but... It's only used of the regenerate. And the adjective here, good, is agathosune. And agathosune is never used of God in the New Testament. It is used exclusively of human conduct. All right? The idea in this little phrase here is that God would fulfill your life circumstances. In your life circumstances, He would fulfill every holy longing that you have. He's going to fulfill. In other words, these people are living for God. They're being persecuted, but they're honoring God. They're growing in faith. They're growing in love. He says, may God fulfill every resolve that you have for good. May He meet every longing of your heart. The psalmist put it this way, delight yourself in Yahweh, and He will give you the desire of your heart. Now, most people want to skip the first part. They want the desire of their heart, but their delight's in Yahweh. People, when you're delighting in Him, When He is your delight, He gives you the desire of your heart because you want what He wants. You're not out for yourself. You're not trying to get it. You're delighting in Him. And I think He gives us the desire of our heart. I really believe this is one of the ways that the Lord leads us and guides us as Christians. When we delight in Him, He gives us our desires because He implants those desires within us. And He drives us through our desires. Why do you do that? I wanted to do it. I think it'd be good for, you know, a good ministry for me, whatever. But you're drawn by those desires. But the main focus is your delight is not in the world. Your delight is in the Lord. And finally, he says that whatever service, whatever work you're involved in would be done with power. And every work of faith by His power You know, in an environment of social hostility, the Thessalonians could realize their good intentions. They could carry out things that they wanted to do because God would empower them to the work they set out to do. Because their work was pleasing to God. It was beneficial to others. There's no way which a, a lost individual can produce a good work acceptable to God. We have to understand that. Apart from God's enabling grace... Now, the Scriptures from beginning to the end make plain the fact of man's inability to please God. That's why God has to do something. We can't do anything to please Him. Look at Romans 8, 7, and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Because it's in the flesh. It's not spiritual. It can't do anything. And he says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now let me ask you this. Does faith please God? It does. So can a man in the flesh act on faith? No, because then he'd be pleasing God and you can't do that. (laughs) What's going on here? God has to impart the faith into us. All right, Those who are in the flesh can't please Him. He gives us the faith. It's all about Him. That's what we have to understand. Let's move on to verse 12. He says, So that the name of our Lord Yeshua may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, he's basically saying here that the purpose of all this isn't for you. The purpose is for the Lord. So that is in order that, or for the purpose of that the name of the Lord Yeshua may be glorified. So Paul says, we pray so that God's name will be glorified in your life. Now remember, this is eschatological. He's talking about the returning of the Lord. They're waiting on the returning of the Lord. God will be glorified in them in this situation. Now, if we go to Ezekiel 39.21, Ezekiel says this, And I will set my glory among the nations. And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. So Ezekiel is talking about the glory seen in the people at the time of judgment, at the time of the day of the Lord. And this is eschatological, just like our text. When God comes in judgment on the unbelievers and to reward and be glorified in the believers, that's what he's praying for. That they would be glorified. Now, he says, the name of the Lord Yeshua. We've gone over this many times, but I think you understand that the name in Hebrew has a significance, okay? It's not like us, you know, Bob, Mike, whatever. It's just, you know, they're just names. They're labels we put on it. In Hebrew, the name meant something. Like Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh's save. That's why, to me, it's important to use the name Yeshua because Jesus means what? nothing it's Jesus it's just you know it's I don't know it doesn't have a significance it's not Hebrew all right and the names were symbolic of that person or his qualities they revealed the person's fundamental character so that name is linked and when you see the word name in scripture you can take out the name and put it in character that's the idea that the character of the Lord Yeshua may be glorified Please silence your cell phones. <laughs> it's all about character. And that's why when we say, you know, we'll talk referring to somebody and they say they got a good name. What do you mean? Bob's a good name? Well, that's okay, but no. You're talking about the person's character, okay? They have good character. And that's what they that's when in the name of the Lord. The character of the Lord would be glorified. The verb glorified here is ex doxodo, and it means to held, be held in honor or esteem. To glorify His name means to demonstrate to the world the person and work of Christ. So it's held in great honor. We esteem the name. We honor the name because of who He is. Now, Michael Martin has written this. I think it's pretty profound. He says, Christ-like behavior is more important than words of praise and glorifying of the Lord. For praise from a life transformed by the power of the Spirit rings true and sweet, but godless living makes a mockery of praise. You get that? You can't, you know, praise the Lord when you're living a sinful, mocking life. It's just, it doesn't cancel it out, okay? It doesn't, doesn't change anything. You know, God wants to be praised from a life transformed by His power. He closes out this chapter by saying, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, it is really common in the Thessalonian letters for Paul to emphatically link the Father and the Son. This last phrase can be translated a couple of different ways. One is that he's talking about one person here. God, even the Lord Yeshua the Christ. So he's actually calling... God the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And it's just one person in view. It can be translated that way. You can also translate it as two: God and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. But in both cases, he's affirming the deity of Christ because in case number one, he's talking about one person. God, who is the Lord Yeshua the Christ. In case number two, he's talking about God and the Lord Yeshua, but he's tying them together to demonstrate the deity of Christ. Now, we've seen this over and over in Paul's epistles because he does it a whole lot. People, here's what I need you to understand. Belief in the deity of Yeshua is essential to salvation. And to question the deity of Christ is to destroy the gospel. Now, I understand that people don't get the hypostatic union, the theanthropic person. They don't understand all the doctrinal implications that go on there. And the more you do, the more you understand this. But it, it can get complicated. But it's we, what we have to understand is what Christ said. He put it this way. I told you, He said, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, the pronoun he is not in this text. It's added by the translators. They tried to help us out. We didn't need help, all right? Because what Yeshua is saying, unless you believe that I am, what's he talking about? He's talking, he's calling himself God here, okay? The conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. If you do not believe, and when the Greek it says, Ego Amy, I am. And that just takes us back to Exodus 3 where Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, I am who I am. That's what He's saying here. He's asserting equality with Yahweh Himself. And He says, unless you don't understand that I'm God, the self-existent, eternal God, you'll die in your sins. This truth that Yeshua is Yahweh is taught from the very first verse of the Gospel of John. He says, in the beginning was the Word, The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now this statement really couldn't be too much clear. In fact, these four Greek words here may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Yeshua in all Scripture. The Greek verb again, "ami," was here, means to be or to exist. And it suggests continued existence. So the Word always existed as Yahweh. Now, John doesn't say, and the Word was divine, or the Word was like God. He makes a bold statement, the Word was God. He leaves no room for anyone to see Yeshua any way less than God, the Almighty God, Yahweh. The Word literally was Yahweh. Yeshua is God in human form, nothing less. He's God in the body. And that's the mystery of deity that Christ amplified in His humility. Unbelievable condescension that God became a man so He could die for man. And so at the very beginning of this Gospel, He lays down that Yeshua is the living Word. He alone is the perfect revelation of Yahweh. And we see Yeshua's deity powerfully demonstrated Really, all through scripture. A lot of times we miss things because we don't understand the Hebrew concepts that they're putting forth. But let me tell you, it's from beginning to end of the Bible. One of my favorite things is in John chapter 5 because it's, you know, you don't really see it unless you dig in there and understand what's going on. But Yeshua gets accused of breaking the Sabbath because he healed a man on the Sabbath. All right? And His response was when he's accused of this, he didn't argue with the Jews over the way they were misunderstanding the Tanakh about the Sabbath. All right, He didn't say, you guys get out your Torahs. Let's sit down and have a little study here. And let me show you how the Torah actually teaches about the Sabbath. He didn't go into any of that. But in verse 17 of John 5, he makes a statement that enrages the Jews to the point that they conspire to kill him. He says, but Yeshua answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. That's a powerful statement on the deity of Christ. You say, how? Well, let me try to explain it to you, all right? Yeshua is justifying His Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. Okay, they knew the sun came up. They knew the wind blew. They knew the rain fell. By the way, they didn't attribute any of these things to just happening. Nature or whatever. God control everything. To them, God causes the grass to grow. All right? He did everything. So they knew that Yahweh continued to do His work of judgment. He continued to do His work of redemption on the Sabbath. They knew Yahweh was working on the Sabbath. And this explains the violence of their reaction in verse 18, because the Sabbath privilege was peculiar to Yahweh. No one else was equal to Yahweh. So in claiming the right to work, even as His Father worked, Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh, the I Am. Now, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying that the eternal God does His work all the time. So he is claiming to do the same thing, to work in the same pattern that Yahweh works. And this shocked and it angered the Jewish leaders, but it really shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with the New Testament. Because as we look at the New Testament, we see that Yeshua is credited with doing the same things throughout the Tanakh that Yahweh does. He uses, you know, in some texts it says the angel of Yahweh did this, and other texts says Yahweh did this, and you're like, which was it? Yes. The angel of Yahweh is Yeshua, pre-incarnate Yeshua. Yeshua is credited with creating the universe. John 1, 1-3, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. That's a pretty clear statement, okay? He is the Creator. Let's back up in the beginning here. He says the Word here is Christ. That's what he's talking about. In the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. And he uses the Greek verb again, amy, which means to be or to exist, which suggests continued existence. At the beginning of eternity, I don't know when that is, (laughs) When there was nothing else, the Word existed, just as Yahweh has. In the beginning, the very beginning, the Word was there. They said, and the Word was with God. This is is pretty important also, because the theological importance here of these words is that they distinguish God the Word from God the Father. See, the Word was with Him. He's with God. There's a separation there, but they're there together. In other words, John is telling us that although the Godhead is one holy, eternal God, God the Word and God the Father are not the same person. And then he said the Word was God. Now, we already looked at that phrase. The Word who was with God and is God created all things. He not only created them, He sustains them. And in Hebrews, the writer says, Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So it was through the Son that the world was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He's God. And and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, one of the most remarkable statements ever said about him, it says that speaking of Christ, he upholds the universe. Now, universe is a bad translation there. The literal translation is all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And the word upholds here is the Greek word pharaoh, which means supporting or maintaining. It's used here in the present tense implying continuous action. What is in view is divine providence. Everything in the world is sustained at every moment by Yeshua. And if He ever stops sustaining it, it would just go out of existence. It would disintegrate. It would blow up. So Yeshua's claim to be doing what His Father was doing shouldn't really shock us as it did the Jewish leaders. What Yeshua explained in his response to the Jews, and what we understand today under the term Trinity, is that there are separate persons in the Godhead, who at one and the same time are totally interrelated, interdependent. There's not three gods. There's one God. But that one God comprises three distinct but equal and independent persons. You, you just can't focus on it too long because you'll start blowing gaskets, okay? it's the Trinity is a concept that's may be difficult to grasp all right by calling God his father in John 5 17 Yeshua is claiming the status of divine sonship for himself he's declaring himself equal with God now the son in his incarnation humiliated him so he became a man all right this is now what we have to understand was when he became a man it wasn't You know, 90 percent man and 10 percent God, or he was 100 percent God, 100 percent man. Okay, the theanthropic person, the God-Man, hypostatic union, God and man joined together. And in that position, he was. He says, "This. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father." For the Father is greater than I. People jump on that same. See, God's greater than Yeshua. He's in His humiliation here. He's talking as a man. As a man, He said He didn't know things. He couldn't do things. Because He's living as a man. And when He became a man, He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He didn't lay aside deity. He can't do that, okay? Because that's who He was. He laid aside the prerogatives and He operated on this earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because He was setting an example. This is how we're supposed to live, by the power of the Spirit. But He was equal to the Father. He says in John 10.30, I am the Father of one. Now as a result of saying this, again, the Jews sought to kill Him. When Yeshua asked for which of the many good works He did that they wanted to kill Him for, they said, the Jews answered Him, it is not a good work that we we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, Because you being a man, and he was a man, make yourself God. And he was God. Yeshua also said in John 14, 9, Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What? Why? How can you say, show us the Father? He embodied the Father. He took on flesh. This is God. This is, this is who I am. Now, many who call themselves Christians today, they, they don't get this. But the Jewish leaders understood his claims. He was clearly saying that he is Yahweh. Look at 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Yeshua the Christ He is the true God and eternal life. Yeshua is God in the flesh. And believers are called to imitate Him, to walk in the way He walked. That's our calling, to be image bearers, to show the world the God who we love, the God who we serve. And I don't think this happens at a church on Sunday morning. Everybody's kind of on their you know church behavior. This happens in life, okay? At your job, in your neighborhood, at school, at work, whatever you're demonstrating to the people around you the power of God, by the way you treat them, by the way you respond to circumstances, by the way you handle difficulties. And again, anybody who is life is going perfectly for them and they're praising God, that doesn't impress people, okay? Sure, you got all that stuff? It's when your life's falling apart, okay, when things are difficult and you're praising God that people take notice. They're like, what in the world? This guy's life is a mess. This woman's life is a mess. And yet they continue to honor and praise God. Yeah. That's what we're called to do. You know, good times, bad times, all times. So Paul wraps up the first chapter of this letter you know, as after he's talked all this about the second coming of Christ, to, to tell, listen, believers, there's my plan for you. Here's my prayer plan for you. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And they were doing it already. He says that over and over throughout the letter. They were living right. And he keeps praying that they'd keep on doing that. And that they would just, you know, their desires would be fulfilled. Because their desires are to honor God, that God would empower them to do all he's called them to do. Believers, again, if we're going to do this, it's because we're spending time in the Word of God, learning what God wants of us. If we're going to do this, it's because we're on our face before God, asking God for the strength and the grace to live the way we know we should live. And trust me, please believe me when I say this is not innate. Okay? This is not something that you just comes out of you because you became a Christian. If you think that, <laughs> <clears> throat> throat> you must be a special person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because I have not found that to be true in my life, okay. Uh, mm. And I think a lot of people stumble because of that, you know, because they think, well, I'm a Christian, I should be, everything should be perfect. No, you should be working on it. You should be dealing with it. You should be growing in grace. But the Christian life is a growth. It's growth. It's a walk. We're walking through this life, seeking to honor God as we do. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Lord, our calling is high. Father, when we think of what you have done for us, once your enemies now seated at your table, that's hard to comprehend, Lord, that you loved us when we hated you, when we walked away from you, when we were doing our own thing. You loved us and you died for us and brought us into your family, seated us at your table to fellowship with you, the living God. Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect who we are, that whoever looks at us would see you shining through us. It's a high calling, Lord. I pray you'd help us to encourage and support one another along this path. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, questions, comments. Wow, too quiet. It's too quiet for me. Yeshua, that's the uh, Greek translation, or is that literally the Hebrew name? That's the Hebrew name, yeah. The Greek translation would be Jesus, or no. I- 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 yes. You know. It's And then it went from Greek to English, and it just ended up with Jesus. But the Hebrew word, you know, Yeshua. The Lord saves, Yahweh saves, and that's why that name is so significant to me. It's telling you, I'm the salvation of Yahweh. Okay, and that's why He told Mary, "You shall call Him." He didn't say Jesus. Okay, they wouldn't have known that name. Okay, matter of fact, before the 17th century, nobody ever heard that name because there was no J in the language. Okay, so whenever you see a Hebrew word with J, you're like, mm, there's a problem there. Okay. Jehovah is a terrible translation never should have been it's it's a it's a really a mess up okay so when someone uses that Jehovah they' they're off base that was done by a huge accident we've gotten into that before but uh, Gary and Krista thank you Dave for standing up for God's incredible word that he has preserved and given to all, all generations we really appreciate your fellowship and look forward every Sunday morning it's my <coughs> Fellowship Hope, other than my number one everyday fellowship with the Lord. We love you and the church and always lift me up. Thanks, Gary. That's that's That means a lot to know that you know we are having an impact on those out there and we are providing a need. Um, it's encouraging. It really is. Uh, we got something here from Norm. He says, God has done it all. <laughs> we all... We are made His sons and daughters with His Spirit indwelling us. Therefore, we have the ability to do what He wants. That's right. We have the ability. The power is there. We just have to operate in it. What He simply wants is for us to display His character, His name. Therefore, being lights in a world of darkness, because He is sovereign, we are exactly where we are supposed to be at this time, and we're supposed to, and the time we're supposed to be in. That's it. We're called to, again, be image bearers. Uh, I don't know who this is from. They say, I look to the Word when I need to make a tough decision, especially if it's a decision that may cause me trouble. (laughs) I understand that. If I know it is right according to His Word, then I can follow through with it in confidence and not worry about the consequences. Yeah, I think sometimes we get really hung up in decisions, you know, um, you know, what What do I do here this way or that way? Well, you know, does the Bible tell you anything? Does the Bible give you any direction on that? You know, mm-hmm. if not, I just, like I said, I do what I want. I just feel like, you know, if I'm, I'm seeking God, I want to do... My prayer is always, God, shut the door where you don't want me and lock it, okay? So I can't get in. I won't go that way. And I'll just, you know, if the door shuts, you just turn away and you just keep going, you know? But I, I mean, I had some kids in my youth department and I mean, they agonize over the will of God and what it was, okay? I mean, these kids would get up in the morning, some of them, and they would sit there and agonize. Am I supposed to eat post-toasties or am I supposed to eat cereals? I mean, and it, you know, it's sad because it came out of a heart's desire to really honor God. But I mean, they, I'm like, God doesn't care. Eat what you want to eat, okay? It's not a sin to eat one or the other. They'll both kill you. It doesn't matter, all right? <laughs> But you know, there's a I can't remember who the author is, but there's a book out called Decision Making in the Will of God. Excellent book, really helped me in my thinking process, okay? Because it just helped you understand, listen, if the Bible doesn't give you direction there, then you're free. You're free to go which way you want to go, because the Bible doesn't say it's right or wrong. So just make the decision you want, you know? And go that direction. It makes life a little bit easier. As a new preterist, I am wondering if the horrible state of the country is related to all Yahweh's judgment on the lack of Christ-like character in the church. Well, that's a good question. I I don't know. I I really think it's just, this is my opinion, and it's changed over the years, because I used to think God needs to judge this country. Okay, because this country is such a mess. God needs to judge it. All right. But I'm thinking now more, we got a small group that run the media a small group of politicians a small group that are evil to the core but i think over the over the course of the country i think there's a lot of people who are just decent people and i think proof of this is you know they're trying to shove this tranny thing down our throat you know and so budweiser makes a beer and gives it to a tranny you know and said they didn't they didn't market a beer with her his face on it for everybody, it was just a can they gave to him, okay? People got so upset about that, Budweiser's now trying to give the beer away because people don't want it. You see the new commercials they made of the horse and they're trying to be, pro america we're all American. People said, I'm not buying it. They're done. Yeah. Okay, I think good people in this country are sick of this. That's how they fight back. Okay, my wallet, you don't get any more of my money, you know? And now Ford's going down that same road. A lot of these companies are getting involved in politics this is stupid. you got to be a moron if you think this is what the country wants. The country's fighting back. David? I just wanted to share a uh, thought I had today on your statement that uh, prayerful life is our declaration that we're dependent upon God, which I know you've shared many times, but in the context today, it just kind of hit me differently because... You were talking about our focus should be more on how we can grow closer to God in our prayer life rather than focusing so much on the results that we get out of it for our personal needs. Right. So I appreciated that. I just feel when we're when I know in my own life, when I'm going through something, you know, physical or whatever, my prayer is not heal me, Lord. My prayer is, Lord, teach me what you're trying to show me, Okay. Because there's something. Is there a reason for this? You know, what do I need to learn? Open my eyes. And I pray that for most people. I don't usually pray for people's healing. I pray that God would spiritually teach them through the circumstances that He brings in their life. Because that's the the important thing. Is our spiritual life. It's not. It's not the physical that matters. It's the spiritual. Yes. So you can, doing it that way, so you can, it's not only really just for you, but it's for somebody else that you might, who might need to hear that, that way. Is, is there any you know, truth to that? Is that where you're coming from with that? With That's what, exactly? With that last step you said, as far as you see something you're struggling with, you asked to heal me, but just close that door, lock it, whatever. Said so it ain't only just for you, but it's for somebody else. Yeah, if I'm praying for somebody, I I guess I'm I'm praying. You know, I know that if your spiritual life is what God wants it to be, if you're walking with the Lord in fellowship with Him, nothing else really matters, okay? Look at the life of Paul. I don't care what you do. You beat him, stuck him in chains. He's praising God. He's having a good time. He's not worried about the small stuff, okay? Because he's in fellowship with God. And I've met many people like that. I've met, I've met people in the most horrendous circumstances that are just joyful because of the relationship with God. See, nothing can touch that. Nothing can touch it. We let our world get rocked by circumstances and we just have to realize God's in control and nothing's out of His control. So let's just, you know, enjoy what we're going through and you know, get excited about what God's going to show us through it. Okay? No, I just I don't understand the question. Okay. I can't answer because I don't even understand it. So that would be crazy to try to explain it. I mean, try to answer something I don't know what the question is. <laughs> it's nice to know the question first. <laughs> Alright, I think we get the point, believers. But, you know, I don't think we can be exhorted enough to walk walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I just don't think we... And it's our job to encourage one another to do that also. And to support one another and help one another. You know, it's not always easy to do that. And I think it's especially difficult for younger people. You know, and we need other people to support us in that walk and to encourage us along that road. You know, and and the world is just getting so corrupt now that it's just, you know, to me, I just shake my head. I'm like, I can't even believe some of this stuff that they talk. I can't can't even fathom, you know. I watched the testimony this morning, I think it was, of uh, a female who transitioned into a male. And she was telling of the horrors of what she's been going through, physically pain. You know, she said, I've had 26 rounds of antibiotics to try to deal with the infection because of the operations. And, you know, just, she said, I probably won't live too much longer. You know, just because of all I've done. They don't tell you any of this stuff, okay? They don't tell you any of this. But there's hospitals now, they're getting paid big bucks to take boys and try to turn them into girls or girls and try to turn them into... You can't do that. You can't do it, okay? All you do is ruin their lives. But, you know, again, this the, they don't care. It's it, There's evil, and that's why I'm hoping... You know God's going to deal with this evil. I'm hoping the Durham report. You know Durham's been working on this for five thinking years now. Okay, oh well, let's get the report out. You know let's and he's telling basically laying it all out what's going on. You know, but of course no news no news people are covering this. They don't want to talk about it. You know.